Are you looking to become a leader in clean energy and an expert in clean tech? Do you hope to get noticed in the crowd as you pursue a career in this fastly growing industry? You are in the right place. Join Karan Takar as he invites clean energy leaders to share industry developments, highlight clean tech investment opportunities, and shed light on how you can increase your chances of employment in this high-growth sector. We will also discuss the energy transition across key emerging markets like India and explore partnership opportunities for the U.S. private and public sector. After all, this is the Zenergy Podcast. Hello, Sean. Thank you so much for taking the time to participate in this interview. I've been really looking forward to speaking with you for a few months now, and I'm really inspired and impressed by your work and the work that Paint Things is engaged in. And prior to diving into all of that interesting and cutting-edge work, it would be nice to learn a little bit about your background as well as what inspired you to launch Paint Things in the first place. Could you provide listeners with a brief introduction yeah, absolutely. And I've been looking forward to this call as well. I'm excited to talk to you and uh, relay a little bit about what we've been working on and a little bit of my story. So I guess for your listeners, your listening audience basically popped out of undergrad, wanted to, wanted to go to med school, got in, and then was actually dissuaded from attending, which I think was stellar advice. Although at the time, I was definitely a little bit iffy. So I went off to Hopkins, did my graduate work in biomedical engineering, became a senior research scientist there for just a little under a decade. And at that point, I sort of realized that I wasn't cut out for a nine to five job. I wasn't cut out for a large organization. I went off, I did my MBA, which I always joke is my master's of bullshit and alcohol. Um, and I, I went across the pond. I went to Oxford because it's a year-long program, a little bit over a year, but it's it's not two years, so it's half the cost. And it was an amazing experience, like being a extra on the set of Harry Potter. And after that, I came back and I, I started starting companies. And the first, my first endeavor, I was a complete amateur, complete hobbyist, as they say. I had no idea what I was doing. And we achieved zero dollars in revenue, but I I learned a lot and I, I kind of doubled down. And my next startup, I was a CTO and that was actually a email analytics company that was well ahead of its time. And we got to bootstrapping, no investment. We got to about half a million a year in recurring revenue. My co-founder decided he wanted a lifestyle business. And I wanted to, you know, I was shooting for the moon. And so we parted ways and folded that enterprise. Then after that, I built a data science consulting firm that quickly grew to over a million a year in revenue and was a great success for me. I hated the misalignment of incentives. You bring in people to do work for you and you offer them kind of a a fixed salary that has a ceiling 
And then there's kind of incentive to to work them as hard as possible because that's just generates more profit for quote unquote the firm, which is right, this nebulous legal construct that allows you to take advantage of someone else and say it's just how we do things. So my next I wanted to get back to sort of a venture backed product focused startup and that kind of took me to ping things. That's where I am today. So a lot of experimentation and a lot of learning. And you know, I look at each startup was sort of at least an order of magnitude more successful than the last one. And Ping Things is actually on track for at least doing that well, but probably better. Amazing. Thank you for expanding on your backgrounds. So prior to starting your MBA, and you mentioned you were working at Hopkins and ultimately realized that you weren't cut out for the nine to five. Just to provide some more context, how long were you working in this nine to five job before you had that realization? And what exactly about the nine to five did not appeal or made you realize that that wasn't for you? Oh, that's a really good question. So I think I always knew that I wasn't quite suited for that. And and there's a couple things like working nine to five. I, I don't know if you're going to do something, you might as well do it well, and you might as well put your heart and soul into it. And that's not nine to five. But unfortunately, with that type of nine to five job, you get the salary and it's fixed. And if you work really, really hard and you're politically well connected, you might get a raise. And you might make a little more money or, oh, maybe you get a title bump, which means nothing. You can't take that to the bank. So what I realized is that when you work that type of job, you're sort of fixed. You can only ascend so far, so fast. It doesn't matter how hard you work or how talented you are. There are sort of constructs that are put in place that prevent... They literally put you in your place. At Hopkins, they had a salary curve. Oh, you're on a salary curve. And this is, you know, this, the curve says we can only do this much. And it didn't matter what you brought to the organization or how many millions of dollars in funding you brought in, irrelevant. And so I learned very quickly that I'm incentivized by reward. And when you're out there on your own, there's an immediacy. If I work an hour, I get paid an hour. And, and I loved, like, that was very, I don't want to say addicting, but like, I really respond well to that set of incentives. So I didn't want the magic money fairy showing up to my bank account. I realized that I wanted to go out there and hunt and eat what I killed. And that was sort of very compelling to me. And that a lot of people, actually, I would say most people have no idea how money comes into organizations. They don't understand the dynamics and how like how they actually get paid. And when you sort of go out on your own and you're hourly or you attempt to build a company, you really you have to understand exactly how the sausage is made because no one's going to... The magic money fairy doesn't show up unless you make it show up. It took a long time to learn that because you know we're so... I, I would say a large percentage of the population is so entrained, like, oh, you know, go to college and you get a good job. You got to get a good job and a good career. And it's, I personally think that's terrible advice. You're always going to be controlled by that job. Just thinking about those people who may find themselves in that situation where they're working nine to five, 
However, they don't feel fulfilled by the work, yet at the same time, don't have clarity in terms of, you know, how to get out of that positioning. Is there any advice that you would give to those people? And what next step, if you were back in that relative position, what would be the next step? Ooh, it's a really good question. And, and I think a lot of this is a function of your socioeconomic class, particularly the socioeconomic class of your parents, because that sort of sets the norms and expectations. And, and I was coming from a eh, middle-class-ish, love my folks, and they did amazing going kind of from poor to middle-class, lower middle-class, which was great. But it was get the job, get the job, get the job. And, and that's not a good idea. And when you when there's a scarcity mentality, you seek stability. And that stability is sort of sold as a job and a stable job at a good company. And I think what I had to do to sort of pull myself out of that was to sort of prove to myself that, hey, I could make money. I could go and I could do this or I could do that. And I could you know, oh, I just made, I made a hundred dollars or I made 200 or I made a thousand. And I could, being able to create an income, even if it's small, without that quote unquote W2 job was sort of the eye opening item for me. And right, you do, you take small steps, you take, you, you prove to yourself that it's possible. And then all of a sudden you, you realize, well, if I scale this, I'm actually going to be making much more money significantly more money than what I'm currently making. And so why don't I just do that? And then all of a sudden you're like, okay, this is great. I'm hourly. I'm charging a great hourly rate. I'm booked as as booked as I can be, but this doesn't scale. So how do we how do we scale that beyond what I am able to make on my own? And you know, there are a couple of different paths forward, but it's all incremental. It's not like Maybe some people do go through this, but it's not like I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna go raise ten million dollars coming from a state's university, because at that point you know no one and you have no connections to money, and it's very unlikely. You don't go from zero to one in a nanosecond. You, you know, for me it was proving that these alternatives were possible, and then go and build, and then build more, and build more, and build more. In that first experience building and becoming an entrepreneur occurred after your MBA from Oxford, correct? In terms of full transparency, actually, no. When I was at Hopkins, I actually was a pretty competitive dancer. And I taught lessons and I taught group classes. And that was sort of one of the first experiences where I was like, wow, I could actually make a lot of money doing this. And so that was... You know, at the time, it was just a, it was a passion, it was a hobby, it was something I really enjoyed. But I never, you know, th- that ship had sailed for me. So it was thinking about something that was quote unquote more sustainable of a lifestyle. And dancing is not really something that you, you know, it's it's very hard to make a good living doing that. And as the you know, as you get older and you age, like it becomes even more challenging. And I could, you know, I could see that in a lot of my coaches. I see. But at the same time, it gave you the confidence and knowledge that you yourself could go out and earn revenue outside of a structure of working for you know, a large company. 
Yeah, it was it was, you know, it was amazing how much money you could make showing people how to shake their butt. <laughs> yeah. After that, you went to Oxford and then at Oxford, did you go in with the mindset of okay, I made money helping people learn how to shake their butt, which, you know, yields great returns for those people listening who might be interested in investing in that space, you know. So did you go into Oxford thinking, okay, now, you know, I know that I can generate revenue outside of working for a large corporation and that's what I want to do. So let's figure out where to apply what company to build. Can you provide some insight into your perspective going into your MBA? Maybe also some of the areas that you explored while at MBA that helped you develop certain skills that you felt were important? And then ultimately, like, how did you find your first entrepreneurial idea? I'll be honest, right? I loved my MBA, but it's a completely worthless degree if you want to go build companies, right? Because you learn how to build companies by building companies, not, not sitting in a classroom. So I had an amazing life. I was very happy. I had a great group of friends. I had a fantastic life. And I sort of said, okay, you know what? Who you are, at least half of it, they say anywhere, like 40 to 60% is a social construct. So it's not just who you are. It's who all the people around you expect you to be. And you sort of fulfill their expectations. So what I realized is, hey, I'm this research research scientist at Hopkins. If I'm going to be something different, if I'm going to reinvent myself, I need to kind of rip myself out from my existing social network and my happy, you know, this happy place that I've built. And I need to go someplace completely different, completely new and sort of reinvent who I am. And, you know, Oxford seemed like a great place to do that because I'd know no one. And as they say, right, it's, it's, two people separated by a common language. And that's very true. And the society, even though, yes, it is English speaking, it is radically different than you know its set of assumptions. So it was kind of a, a really good place for me to go and try to reinvent. And in Harry Potter? Yeah, and in, in Harry Potter land, right? Um, so it was kind of a calculated risk or calculated experiment. And so I wasn't necessarily thinking about like what type of companies am I going to build? It was more of like, if I'm going to be the type of person who builds companies, I need to fundamentally change who I am. Because my life had been as a research scientist, I could write papers, I could write code, I could I could do things that I needed to do as a research scientist, but that was that was not building a business. That was not building an organization. So I needed to be someone different. That makes a lot of sense. As you were thinking about who you wanted to be, what were some key traits that you're looking to develop? I think it was running away from as opposed to toward. It was running away from sort of a set of expectations and a set of beliefs, right? Like you're, we all live in the prison of our own construction, our own mental models, most of which are probably outdated and suboptimal. So I, I kind of, I knew what had gotten me to where I had been wasn't going to take me to where I wanted to go. So it was more about tearing down than 
necessarily building up in a particular direction as as that you know now that i'm saying it it sounds like hmm, maybe i should have had a better plan um I, I think first step in that plan was tear down what wasn't working and so i had to tear down who i was as as kind of who i had created for myself like this research scientist person and kind of prepare myself to go and start doing something radically different like you know, when you're starting a business, you're recruiting or you're fundraising or you're selling. So it's just very different mindsets for some of those activities. That is so interesting. I've never really heard someone put it like that, but it makes a lot of sense. And I imagine that it's an extremely difficult thing to do, especially, you know, when you're like in your mid to late 20s, um, your personality is pretty well developed by that point. I mean, I'm just, Imagining for myself, like if I were to, you know, try and completely transform at this age, that would be an extremely difficult process, which would require a lot of transformation. So like, what were some activities or practices that you engaged in to help facilitate that change? When I look back on sort of the cost of the MBA, that year, probably, let's say it just called $100,000. I really was outsourcing a lot of that to sort of Oxford as a location, as a university, as my cohort of MBA classmates and the folks at college. I was I went to I was at Hartford um, and all of the people that I met, and so I didn't necessarily lay out a particular, you know, hey, here's my schedule because like when you cram a two-year MBA into a year, and then you're also living in Oxford and, you know, I danced and I had my college and I had my MBA and I literally, what would happen is you'd have eight weeks of classes to, you know, a week of study, then a week of finals. And at the end of those 10 weeks, everyone was sick because literally you hadn't slept for two and a half months. (laughs) And, you know, Oxford isn't, I say Oxford University. Oxford University is sort of a, it's a shell, it's an umbrella, and it's composed of all of these colleges. And there are events, and let me tell you, shit's flying left and right. And you're constantly, you're constantly making decisions and you're constantly faced with ambiguity. And if you don't embrace it, you jump off the bridge of size, like it's really difficult. And and intrinsically with, you know, kind of a science and engineering background, I was an optimizer, right? So I'm trying to optimize every single decision that I'm making. And then being in an environment where that was simply, it was incalculable for me to do that. It kind of forced me and challenged me to grow. And I think those are very useful traits for becoming an entrepreneur because you never have enough information. You never have complete information and you're always under time pressure. So, you know, I don't know if that was some genius decision from the Said Business School, whoever architected it, but like it worked really well for me. I was laughing because I really relate. I'm at that two month mark. We have six weeks left and it's just been jam packed with constant opportunity always presented at you, you know, so learning how to prioritize. And I too am someone who thinks deeply about all the decisions I'm making, but it's very difficult in a 
you know, such a new and constantly happening environment. So thank you for providing more insight. And I think now would be a good time to talk more about your work at Ping Things. As I was researching your company, and I've conducted a lot of these interviews, a few with people who, you know, work on the utility side, as well as who also have experience investing in the clean tech slash energy power sector technology space. And from my understanding and through these conversations, I've learned that there is significant opportunity to, you know, build platforms such as the one that you're currently building in terms of optimizing and providing more visibility into what's happening on the grid. But essentially, we'd just like to hear more about how you're thinking about the space and also where you feel what gap you feel paying things to be filling within the energy market and the power market in the U.S. The gap that we're filling is that, right, Ping Things, we provide a very performant, very scalable, very cost-effective time series data platform, right? It's designed for data management, analytics, applications, and AI with time series data, typically machine-generated or sensor data. And so we see kind of the, the opportunity here is that with the contemporary grid, right? We're going from a unidirectional system where they generated power, it flowed through the transmission system, and then it gets consumed. It flows from the transmission to distribution, it gets consumed, and that's it. And we're going from that, which is a, you know, honestly, it's still a complex system, but energy and power are flowing in one direction. It's like a volcano. Volcano erupts, lava flows down from the top of the volcano, and it, you know, when it hits the sea, it, it's done. To now, with kind of the big push, the energy transition, we've gone from that unidirectional model to a bidirectional model and one that's orders of magnitude more complex and complicated. And the old grid, right? We had big hunks of spinning metal. They follow lovely physical laws. You can write the equations for them that govern their behavior. And they generate power and they generate nice sine waves. And they are knowable systems. And now what we're doing is we're, we're ripping a lot of those out. And right, we had equations that told us almost exactly how those things worked. And now we're throwing in all of these semiconductor-driven devices, these black boxes, with dynamic performance characteristics that no one knows. And we're throwing those things onto a legacy grid. We're violating the original design assumptions and requirements. And we're just expecting that to work. And it's not going to. And the patient, i.e. the grid, desperately needs monitoring. We need to be consuming and using all of those time-stamped measurements from all of those sensors that are already deployed, and we need to use them to tell us about how the grid is behaving, what's going wrong, what might go wrong, and head it off before it happens because grid outages are an enormous cost on society. So we see 
kind of the role that we can play is one in kind of foundational to the energy transition because at its heart, the energy transition is going to be a digital transformation of the legacy grid. How did you identify that this was a need in the first place? As in what inspired this idea to launch a platform which provided that visibility and monitoring of the grid? We knew that there were, like on the transmission system, there's a type of sensor called a synchrophaser or phaser measurement unit, a PMU, and it generates a tremendous amount of data. It can generate 200 channels or streams at 30 to 240 samples per second per stream. And we knew that there were a lot of those sensors deployed, but a lot of utilities weren't using the information. They weren't, we actually have a smart, we have a smart grid. We just have it turned off. And we have it turned off because dealing with that volume of time series data is hard. And it wasn't a solved problem. And a lot of their existing data systems could not handle that volume and velocity of data, of time series data. So we saw that as kind of a, ooh, you know, here is a need. We can solve this need. And lo and behold, there are just a tremendous number of use cases and applications that this data can enable. And that what we see, you know, it's kind of like with a highway. If I add lanes to a highway, typically I'm going to get more traffic. I'm going to get more cars. And so as more bandwidth becomes available and ubiquitously, then typically you you get sensors that are going to sample faster and faster and faster so that they're they're able to capture rapid or short duration dynamics on the grid. It's kind of an inevitable trend. And we realized that existing systems just weren't up to it. So a great opportunity. What were some of the data points and different measurements or factors or variables that the technology that you mentioned that was already on the grid, but was turned off and wasn't being effectively utilized by the utility companies. Can you provide insight into what variables that those systems were providing to the utility companies that then you guys have been able to harness for the operators and how that helps them? Yeah, absolutely. So the sensors that I mentioned, the synchrophasers, right, what they do, the Voltage and current on the power grid, most of it flows as it's alternating current. It's a sinusoid. It's a sine wave, or at least it should be. And in the US, it's 60 hertz. So it, it oscillates 60 times a second. And the synchrophaser, what it does is it measures that sine wave, let's say typically 10,000 times a second. And then it extracts parameters about that sine wave like the magnitude and the phase angle. And it does that for both the voltage and the current waveforms. So what it does is it's giving you kind of a high definition view of the voltage and current on the grid. So instead of getting an update once every two seconds or once every 15 minutes, like right the, the smart meter on the side of your house sends back data like once every 15 minutes or once every 30 minutes, these sensors are doing that 30 or 60 or 120 times per second. And so it's like going from AM radio to a high definition picture. 
and you can just see much more of the fast dynamics on the grid that were invisible before. We're talking about everything from lightning strikes to oscillations to the noise and the behavior you see before a asset will fail. So the kind of the hints of asset failure. And so you can estimate asset health, et cetera. We're looking at over a hundred different use cases for this data. And the kind of the exciting part is we see it as absolutely instrumental from a energy transition perspective, because a lot of the inverter-based resources on the grid, like solar, for example, actually create a lot of noise and a lot of problems for the electric grid when they're added. And we can see that. We can make that visible. And when you make a problem visible, then that problem can be solved. And that's exactly what we're doing with a lot of our utility customers. I see. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you for expanding on that. In terms of the opportunities and challenges within this space, what do you foresee as one of the major opportunities and benefits, which you already just touched upon, but I think would be useful to further go into what the challenges are exactly as it pertains to bringing more solar onto the grid for utility providers and grid operators and how exactly your platform can help those potential customers. Yeah, absolutely. So one big problem that we're seeing and a lot of the utility experts are talking about now in all the utilities that we talk to, it's a phenomenon known as oscillations. And so what happens with an oscillation is you can think of it with your washing machine. You know how like when you load it up and it's a little bit off and you get that womp, 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 womp kind of noise from the out of balance washing machine when it goes into its spin cycle, where that drum is spinning very fast, but you hear the womp, womp, that is an oscillation. And that is exactly what's actually happening on the grid, uh, especially when you add these inverter-based resources. Uh, solar itself is a DC. When I, when I shine a current, when I put photons onto a photovoltaic panel, you know, I generate a DC voltage or current, I have DC power. And to match that to the grid, I need to then convert that into an oscillating sinusoid. And if I don't do it just right, I can cause those oscillations to occur. And those oscillations ripple across the grid. You can actually have one that starts on the East Coast and makes its way to Alaska. These things can have far-reaching impacts. And those oscillations, they can ebb and flow over time, depending on how the load on the grid changes and what, what new resources either go, go offline or come online. And so you can actually have these oscillations cause blackouts and they can trip different devices that will activate when they're not because of that oscillatory behavior. So that's something we're seeing everywhere. And because these oscillations are typically from, let's say, 2 to 10 hertz. They're much faster than existing systems can see. 
and we can see them clearly and we can monitor them over over months and years. And so we're getting insight in how the grid actually behaves and the conception of how it behaves is not accurate. A lot of folks look at these oscillations as singular events and they're not. These oscillations are bouncing around the grid all of the time, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and they ebb and flow. And that's really what causes a lot of these problems. So it's not just an unusual event. It's actually happening continuously, but sometimes it gets bad enough to get noticed. I see. By providing visibility into those oscillations, then the grid operators can effectively try and mitigate those oscillations. And as a result, would that improve the efficiency of the grid? Oh, it's it's enormous. It's an enormous benefit because right now we are at a relatively low solar or inverter-based resource penetration, right? Some places like Hawaii are, are more so than others, but we're relatively low. And as we add more, sort of what we've seen is are, the, are these problems increase and they increase in magnitude, they increase in severity, they increase in along a lot of different dimensions. And fundamentally, the complexity of the grid is increasing. So if we want to achieve this energy transition where we have this grid that's powered by a lot of renewable energy, this is going to be an, an enormous problem. And it's one of these problems that unfortunately hasn't gotten enough press because it's not just about standing up a new solar plant, right? That's great. That's a, it's a good first step. But you can think of it like a developer, right? Someone who develops residential housing, right? The developer comes in, buys up land, throws down some houses. He or she takes their money and they're out. But then it's the community that sort of has to pick up the pieces and make sure the roads are big enough, make sure the schools are okay, and make sure the hospitals, et cetera. You can't just build houses and magic happens. There's a lot of infrastructure that's needed to support those houses. And that's something that's similar with switching from the grid we used to have to a grid that's really driven not by one or two traditional generators, but by hundreds or thousands of smaller inverter-based renewable resources. That makes a lot of sense. And yeah, that brings me to a statistic that I read, which reflected how unplanned outages are growing around 10% every year. And that has the potential to cost about $190 billion annually. So by having visibility into these systems, utilities can potentially save significant amount of money over time. I think that's why when I do talk to a lot of investors and also see some of the trends that are occurring within the different clean tech verticals, this space is receiving a lot more interest in investment. Yeah, I think I think it's important because Obviously, everyone's on board with having greener energy, but what happens if the cost of a greener grid is such that now the the price of energy has gone up by a factor of five? Well, obviously, from an energy equity standpoint, that's terrible, right? Because now all of a sudden, you're putting a much larger burden on those folks who aren't in a position to be able to pay. 
right? So those folks sort of at the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder are going to get crushed. And so I think it's not only our responsibility to create a more sustainable grid, but to do so in a way that's not economically devastating, right? We need to do it in a way that allows everyone to benefit from this energy transition and it doesn't leave certain groups behind. And so I think that's something where we can do it, but there's an initial cost, which people are talking about, just like there's an initial cost to developing all those houses. But no one really wants to talk about the other large infrastructure enhancements that are going to be needed to make that a reality. And, and, and it's starting to get some play, but if we don't, we're just going to watch the cost of energy increase and increase and increase. And that's obviously so much of our today's society and the function of our country depend on particular price for energy. And when it's not there, we get a lot of problems. Do you find in your conversations with the people who could benefit from this product, which I imagine are primarily utility companies, do they see the need for having more visibility into their systems? And can you just provide some insight into how receptive you've been finding them to be? So when we first started out, <laughs> let's just say things were different. Now we've seen a much different, a much warmer reception, much more welcoming reception. I think not only do they understand that they are facing a challenge, like the energy transition is, is the largest challenge that they've faced as an entity, but they're also understanding the value of that data. And they're starting to understand that it's not just about applications and use cases, but a core competency of the utility. It's not just about electrons flowing and delivering power, but it's about data and bits. And that they, they are going to have to reinvent themselves as digital organizations. Like that is a core competency that the utilities who don't will be acquired by those who do. And so it's an existential event for them as well. Because the ones who do will then be able to harness those insights to reduce the instances where unplanned outages occur or also reduce their maintenance costs. So essentially, it will give them a financial advantage. And an enormous one. We've projected the capability of saving individual utilities tens of millions, if not larger amounts of money per year. Super interesting. Does that take into account the expected surge in solar that likely is going to result by the passing of the Inflation Reduction Act? I think I read a report recently which pegged the 2027 solar installation numbers to now increase by an additional 20% simply because of the passing of the IRA. So I imagine with that increased penetration will come a lot more challenge in terms of integration on the grid. Absolutely. Absolutely. And right with sort of the current push and the current funding, we expect it's only going to accelerate. This has been really informative. Thank you so much for all of your time. Um, I would lastly like to circle back on a more 
philosophical question and would love to hear your thoughts as you reflect on your career journey. Is there any advice that you'd give to young people who are making that leap and decision on which career they want to pursue? Do you have any advice that you would give them? Oof, there's so much. I think the single most valuable thing that you can do is to kind of, right, we operate on these mental models, these habits. We see the world through these lenses that we've created for ourselves based on our experiences. And we're they're often subconscious. We're not aware of them. And being able to bring them to the level of consciousness, to be aware of them and really evaluate and enumerate and analyze those mental models that you kind of operate on, that's like the step zero, right? Because then you can you can deconstruct the ones that you don't like, you can emphasize the ones that you do like. But typically a lot of that stuff, it's going to be out of date. It's going to be stuff that that you developed when you were at a different point in life that really isn't going to help you get to where you want to go. I guess the advice I would give is that there's an introspection that I think is required. And unfortunately, it's not taught. I think it's a core competency for being part of the species, for being human. But it's not, it's not discussed in any, any class or school I've ever been in, but it's an essential skill. And I, I would say that's, I'd sort of start with that. Amazing. Now I have a follow-up question. <laughs> yeah, go for it. <laughs> because of how amazing that answer was. What would that process look like practically? I mean, if you were to, you know, go back in time and you were, you know, just leaving college and decided, okay, I need to see whether, you know, my operational mental frameworks are actually helping me reach whatever I, you know, want to achieve. How do you go about that introspection process? What I did is I found a really quiet, serene place. I got out a blank pad, the type that I like to write in, and I would pick some aspect. G- give me an example of, a, like a, of an aspect of your life that you're thinking about. Mm, let's say my relationships. Okay. So I would, you know, at the top of the pad, you know, at the top of the sheet of paper, I'd put relationships and I'd, you know, maybe I'd list all my relationships and then I would just give myself at least a couple minutes per relationship to just stream of conscious, just dump and just let myself put on paper or type whatever is more natural, just stream of conscious thoughts unfiltered about those relationships in particular. You know, if we're talking about general categories of relationships, if you're talking about relationships with specific people, and I would just dump and I would vomit my thoughts onto that paper until like I'm I'm just done and I'm I'm empty. And then to go back and start reading through to like, oh, that's where I stand on that person or that's where I stand on that type of relationship. There is a lot there that will come out if you give it sort of the time and space and environment to do. And once you read it, like you might be actually quite shocked by what you write. And would the same process apply to career goals, for example? I think it's an amazing start for any of these like career goals. Well, let's start writing about career goals. And then when you get to a point, 
and you stop and you're rereading, the prompt is, well, why? Why do I think that? Why do I think that? What makes me think that? And keep questioning those thoughts. And because, right, like a lot of that stream of conscious, what we're trying to do is you have a bunch of assumptions that are built in everything those relationships or, you know, career advice or career path, et cetera. It's built on a set of assumptions. And if you keep like, well, why do I assume that? And you keep trying to make those assumptions apparent, tangible, then you can keep, well, I don't know why I have that assumption anymore. Oh, crap. That's an assumption I got from my, you know, from my uncle, right? You can actually, and once you see where some of these beliefs, because what we're trying to do is we're trying to make visible the beliefs that have built up inside your head that sort of govern a lot of the decisions that you will make. Because if you can figure out what your beliefs are, you can probably change them. But if they're hidden, you can't because you're on autopilot. Amazing. Thank you, Sean, sincerely for your time and your insights and for these recommendations. I think I have some work to do coming up, but no, really appreciate everything. Yeah. If you have any final thoughts. Yeah. If, oh, I mean, if you're a utility or you're a potential customer, please contact me. We're always looking to add new partners, but just in general, I, I, you know, you look around and you wonder why this stuff isn't taught in school. There seems to be a core set of skills that people really need, and they're just not taught. If you think about the species and how do we go from where we are today into a better future, there are obvious deficiencies that we and we just keep repeating the same mistakes. And so if we keep behaving in the same ways, it's kind of absurd to think that we're going to get out from sort of the set of traps that we keep creating for ourselves. I, ultimately, I think that starts with education. So why do we keep why do we keep doing the same stuff? 100% completely agree. Thank you, Sean, for all of your amazing insights and for your time. Yeah, anytime. Lovely to talk. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Check out the episode description or show notes for more information on our guest. See you next time.